As we recorded this series of programs on foreign direct investment, a few patterns have emerged regarding what kind of potential transactions or deals tend to attract government attention. But each country or jurisdiction also tends to have its own specific concerns relative to its national security, its resources, and its economy. And Australia is no exception. Let's go down under to learn more. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks, Foreign Direct Investment in Australia. Based in Jones Day's Sydney office, M&A lawyer Amelia Pacelli has more than 10 years' experience acting on a range of complex corporate transactions and security law matters, with a particular focus on public company takeovers, schemes of arrangement, corporate restructures, and strategic joint ventures. Mark Crean, also in Jones Day's M&A practice and also in Sydney, leads the firm's Australian M&A team with more than 20 years of experience in M&A, restructurings, and private equity. He is a member of the Corporations Committee and the Foreign Investment Committee of the Law Council of Australia. Ingrid Costello is an M&A lawyer working primarily out of Jones Day's Brisbane office. She focuses on corporate advisory, M&A, equity capital markets, corporate refinancing and structuring, and general contracting and compliance matters. And finally, Chase Konecki is here from Jones Day's government regulation practice and the firm's Washington office. Chase advises and represents clients in foreign direct investment matters, including filing CFIUS notices and negotiating mitigation agreements. Thank you all for being here with us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. Let's go to Mark first. Mark, give us a brief overview, kind of a general look at what the foreign direct investment regime is like in Australia as we speak today. Sure, Dave. So Australia has had a foreign investment regime for over 40 years. In Australia, the Foreign Investment Review Board, which uh, we call FERB, Mm -hmm. is responsible for overseeing the foreign investment regime. And the rules are a mix of legislation, regulations, guidance, and policy, which many of which can be seen on the FERB website. They provide essentially that various investments by foreign investments should be reviewed by FERB. And a foreign investor will include a corporation in which a single foreign holder has 20% or more, or where foreign holders in aggregate or together hold uh, 40% or more. This means that Australian companies can be foreign persons or foreign investors. Uh, there are also specific rules for foreign government investors, which we'll talk about later. The ultimate decision on foreign investment is actually the Treasurer of Australia. Uh-huh. So FERB's role in that process is an important one, but it acts as an advisory body making recommendations to the Treasurer. So the FERB board will look at a, a potential acquisition or an investment and advise the Treasurer at that point? That's exactly right. Okay. Foreign Investment Review Board sounds reasonable enough. Amelia, is the FERB approval process mandatory or voluntary? Well, Dave, it actually depends on the transaction. So under the FERB rules, the Treasurer has the power to make orders in relation to certain transactions that are called significant actions. These are matters that the Treasurer considers them to be contrary to the national interest of Australia. Mm-hmm. And some of these significant actions actually require mandatory notification and they can't proceed or go to close until the Treasurer has essentially approved them. And other significant actions, they don't need to be notified, but there is a benefit in making a voluntary application because that would mean that the Treasurer could not subsequently block or unwind the transaction or cause divestment of certain Australian assets that have been acquired under a transaction. So even if it's not mandatorily required, we would typically still recommend that our clients make a voluntary notification. Okay, this is a lot to unpack, so we'll drill down a little bit. Ingrid, tell us what kinds of deals would normally require 
mandatory notification. So all types of transactions can be captured, but share and asset deals and also mergers will be captured if they have an Australian connection and if they meet certain thresholds. So, for example, if we take a share deal, a foreign investor who acquires 20% or more of an Australian company, which has a value exceeding a certain monetary threshold, will require mandatory approval. And mandatory approval is also required if the transaction would result in foreign investors in aggregate owning 40% or more of the company. So it's not just from one single country. So the monetary threshold is Aussie dollar 266 million for most deals, Mm -hmm. um, including all deals involving a sensitive business, which we'll talk about. And then there's a higher threshold for certain foreign investors from free trade agreement partners. And these include the United States, China and Japan. And that threshold is 1.154 billion. Higher, right? Yep. So so the monetary threshold is determined by the gross value of the Australian assets or or the consideration if that's higher in some transactions. Mm -hmm. And then it's we should note that there's also the lower thresholds for foreign government investors. There are some variations to this. Investments in different types of Australian land are also highly regulated by FERB. So it does take some analysis to see where mandatory approval is required in certain cases. Okay, good. Let's bring in Chase Konecki for a minute. Based on what you're hearing, Chase, how does this FERB approval process compare to Cepheus in the U.S. or the new FIRMA pilot program? Do you see similarities? Is this a global trend we're looking at in terms of you know, thresholds and, and what's reviewed? Yeah, I, I do think there are some similarities and actually some differences as well that are worth exploring. I think for the most part, historically, from a Cepheus perspective, the Cepheus process was voluntary and really involved evaluating the nature and extent to which the U.S. government would be interested in a particular foreign investment in the United States from a national security perspective. Mm-hmm. But that world changed uh, back in November, and now we also have a mandatory notification requirement for uh, investments in so-called critical technology companies. And so certainly moving in the direction of Australia in that particular regard, you know, one, I think, important difference between the two regimes, it sounds to me like there are particular percentage thresholds of investment that need to be satisfied to trigger the FERB process. Uh, mm-hmm. Here in the U.S., uh, historically, there really hasn't been a particular investment percentage. It's really been tied to whether, regardless of the percentage, whether the foreign investor is obtaining any control rights over a U.S. business. So I think that's an interesting distinction between the two programs. Yeah, it is not so much a value analysis as it is what's actually being acquired and where's national interest. That's interesting. Okay, as I was preparing for this, you were all kind enough to send me some notes. Someone said, ask about agriculture and agribusiness. Uh, Agriculture and agribusinesses are big components of the Australian economy. Amelia, what particular issues arise with potential investments in those industries or sectors? Well, that's a good question. So there are different approval requirements that are applicable to agricultural investments. And the intent of that approval process is is not to deter foreign investment in agriculture, but to address a public concern that Australia is selling the farm, so to speak. Mm. Um, And so issues of national interest that arise out of that are things like food security, prosperity in regional areas, and protection and utilisation of um, Australia's natural resources. So any proposed direct investment in an agribusiness will require approval where that investment is over $58 million, Aussie, and 
A direct interest is simply an interest of 10% and can sometimes be zero if if a party acquires control over that agribusiness. Okay. Um, investments in agricultural land also will require approval where the foreign person's total um, holdings in agricultural land exceed a mere $15 million. And that was reduced from $252 million in 2015. So Agricultural uh, land and agribusinesses are a, are a big focus for FERB and the government at the moment. There are some high thresholds for um, free trade agreement partner countries, um, as we discussed before, right. but $0 thresholds will apply to foreign government investors. There's also an interesting a further requirement that was only introduced recently, and that is that where agricultural land is up for sale, it needs to be subject to a public auction process for at least 30 days. And that's basically to ensure that Australian investors have an opportunity to acquire those types of land holdings. Ah, now that's interesting. Do other regimes do that? I'm throwing this out to everybody. Is that unique to Australia or <clears throat> does that happen in other jurisdictions where, okay, this is for sale, but we want to kind of open a window to make sure people from here get a shot at that. Has anybody heard of that elsewhere? I have. That's an interesting dynamic of the FERB regime. Hmm. Yeah, but it's, it's Mark. Um, it's quite interesting because one of our partners in, in Brisbane, Brett Heading, was uh, literally about to sign an agreement uh, in respect to some agricultural land when that was introduced. And because that had been a private process, they had to put an advert in the paper advertising the land for 30 days before they could complete the sale. And literally the announcement was made the day before we were about to complete that transaction. So that particular rule is, is very relevant to John's day. Well, I'm glad I asked now because you know, <laughs> this, this is sort of unique and, and you've got firsthand experience, Mark, in terms of you know how that can apply and how that might impact a potential deal or transaction. Let's stay with Mark for a second. Talked about agribusiness, talked agriculture. What other businesses or industries or sectors are considered sensitive in Australia for purposes of uh, this discussion with FERB? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I think it is one that uh, has got parallels with the way the rules in CFIUS and FIRMA have been developing recently. So for a long time, sensitive industries included things like media and telecommunications. There are specific rules around the banking sector. But more recently, the sensitive industries have been uh, extended to uh, critical infrastructure, including transportation and telecommunications. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to that in a second. Mining of uranium and petroleum and the operation of nuclear facilities have been there for a long time. Okay. And again, more recently, encryption and securities technologies and communication systems have been added to the list. Finally, FERB's becoming increasingly concerned about data security, particularly personal data, oh, sure. um, and the oversight of businesses that store or manage sensitive data, such as health information and the government's own data. So uh, this is an area that moves with the times, and it's a, it's a very, very topical question. Finally, uh, any business with a military or defence connection is, of course, sensitive. And interestingly, very recently, the new head of FERB was appointed in the last two years, and he is the former head of Australia's security intelligence body, ASIO. Wow. So there is very much a security element to, and a defence element to the sensitive sectors and to the consideration of whether a, a transaction will be approved or not. Certainly makes sense. I'm not surprised to hear defense-related and security-related industries might be impacted. But it's interesting. You mentioned data, privacy, and security. I, I don't know if you said it exactly that way. We've been doing these podcasts for a year and a half now. 
I don't think we've done a single one <laughs> where data security didn't somehow come into play, no matter what the topic or issue is. So that's something Jones Day has done a very good job of addressing at the practice level and with uh, collaboration across practices. So obviously that's a hot button no matter what the big topic is. So I'm not surprised to hear that. Chase, is this similar to what uh, is considered sensitive in the U.S.? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. As Mark was talking, I had a little tickler list of items that he mentioned, things like critical infrastructure and personal data and health information. I was trying to create two columns, one of differences and one of similarities. And I came up with a lot more similarities than I did differences. I will say the, the main difference, I think, and this goes back to Amelia's discussion, is agriculture. You know, We don't really see the U.S. government focused on or be concerned particularly about foreign investments in the U.S. agriculture sector, unless, of course, the particular uh, piece of land that's being acquired is, is located in close proximity to or adjacent to a sensitive military facility. Uh-huh. But I think to Mark's point, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of movement into the data, personal data issues, health information, and you know, see the, the definition of critical infrastructure be interpreted fairly broadly where you might not originally thought of a particular transaction impacting critical infrastructure, but nonetheless finding out subsequently that it does. Sure, sure. You know, we're talking about similarities across regimes and jurisdictions. You wonder if maybe we are evolving towards some sort of, I don't know if we'll ever reach a global standard, but certainly maybe by regions and so forth, maybe everybody kind of copies the same model. So there's some predictability for a potential investor looking at an acquisition or, or an investment or a target. Is that possible? Yes, I think we see a lot of uh, regimes, and I think that's the purpose of this podcast series, is to explore what a number of countries are doing around the world. And I think that's absolutely right, and, and we'll, we'll iron out all those details in these podcast episodes. But I think that's the direction that countries are moving to be focused a bit more on things like national security and critical infrastructure, as the U.S. has been for quite some time. Yeah, and it's quite interesting. It's Mark again. So uh, there's clearly similarities and differences, and some of the differences reflect just particular local issues. Yeah, the similarities, I think, in some ways reflect the power of technology and the ability of technology to control some of these critical infrastructures, such as electricity systems, water, telecommunications, and a concern governments have that in the wrong hands, those things could be essentially shut down. So I think that's a very common thing across many jurisdictions. In Australia's case, agriculture is a particular issue. It's highly political. You know, there are significant uh, voting patterns, and we have a significant amount of agricultural land, ranging from huge cattle stations the size of, say, a country like Holland, to very small family farms. And the reason for the $15 million threshold that Amelia talked about earlier was a concern that a foreign investor could come in without approval if the threshold was set too low and, and, and buy and aggregate lots of smaller holdings into one very large holding without approval. There's often particular issues in particular countries, but the infrastructure and other level, it's, it's, it's not surprising to see that having a common approach across jurisdictions. Yeah, and there's, there's ultimately a way to have it both ways. I mean, obviously, you mentioned Holland, the Netherlands, you know, the, the issues there are going to be very different than what's going on in Australia. So if we evolve towards some standardization, certainly each government and regime has to take into account what's most important and what fits best there. So let, let's pick up on government investments for a second. Speaking of governments, there's a sentiment out there or a belief, or maybe it's just a fact 
that more stringent rules apply to foreign government investors, which I think is opposed to, say, a private sector type investor. Are you going to explain how that works and why that is? Sure. So it isn't just a sentiment. It is a practice. Okay. Acquisitions of a direct interest, which Amelia mentioned before, is normally 10%, but maybe a, a lesser interest by a foreign government investor in an Australian entity or business will require mandatory approval and there's no monetary threshold. Mm. So this can be compared to the test for private investors where there might be a high threshold of a 20% interest and a certain monetary threshold before it requires mandatory approval. And it's also worth noting that the concept of foreign government investor is very broad. It includes any entity where government agencies or instrumentalities from a single foreign company hold 20% or more, and that includes sovereign wealth funds or municipal pension funds from the same country. And then there's also a threshold, a 40% threshold applies if interests are held by foreign government entities from more than one foreign country. Um, So it's worth noting that that due to the level of of investment by entities such as pension funds Uh or state-owned enterprises or sovereign wealth funds, our FERB rules can effectively capture commercially run enterprises which have that mix of upstream investment. So a pension fund representing government workers in, I don't know, Thailand comes yes. in and they want to buy, they, they are subjected to different rules than would a private investor normally. Yes, yes, they would be. So the thresholds are lower, so there's zero monetary threshold. Okay. Um, Let me ask you this. I don't want to raise something potentially sinister. Do you always know? Could some group, some shell corporation actually representing a a government or a government agency with maybe less than pure motives come in there under the guise of, uh, you know, a, a shell corporation or something? I mean, are there cases that that's happened or am I watching too many James Bond films? I'm not aware that there are necessarily sort of, there's subterfuge in that respect. Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing that you have to be careful of is that in Australia, the government can actually make a divestiture order. So you'd have to unwind that transaction if it's found that you didn't meet the FERB requirements or get the necessary approval and it's found that the transaction is against the national interest. But in terms of actual cases where you might have, for example, a shell company that represents the interest of a foreign government investor um, and they haven't made or or sort of received the necessary approvals, it may happen. I'm not aware of any per se. There's a very high level, I think, of compliance in the business sectors. There have been some examples in the residential land sector where individuals have been found not to have gone through the process, and there have been instances of divestiture orders being made. But at a business level, I think there's a high level of compliance. One other comparison here I'll make to the US, which Chase might comment on, is um, because of the 40% threshold of pension funds and the like, a number of private equity groups, which have large limited partner investors that come from those sorts of uh, groups of efforts, um, a lo- number of private equity groups have, have are treated as foreign government investors. There is an exemption for U.S. managed general partners of private equity funds in the uh, CFIUS rules, which we don't have, unfortunately, at this stage in Australia. We've actually been talking to FERB in, in various fora about whether something of that kind would be a useful exemption. So, Chase, I think you have that sort of exemption in your CFIUS or FIRMA rules. Yeah, particularly under the, the new FIRMA uh, statute and the regulations that are, that are rolled out, if the private equity fund is completely managed by a U.S. person GP, then in most cases that private equity fund would not be considered a foreign person for purposes of CFIUS. Let's go back to Mark for a second, talking about different investors and, and investments by investors from different countries. Are all investors treated equally? 
Or is there more concern that an investor might come in from a country like, say, China? I know globally there's, there's some concern. And are there different concerns or different levels of concerns from investments coming in from various countries? I think if you were to read the Australian media, you might think that a lot of the foreign investment concerns were really about China. I don't think that's strictly the case. It's certainly not the case in the legislation, which has a country-neutral approach. There have been, in many instances, in the early stages of Chinese investment in Australia, a lot of the investors were state-owned enterprises. So that did lead to a slightly different approach than, say, private sector enterprises because of a concern about ensuring that the uh, driving forces of government investors were the same as commercially motivated as, uh, say, the private sector. There was also a, a significant increase in Chinese investment in Australia, as there was globally, which I think FERB had to catch up with quite quickly because it, it happened very quickly. And the sort of assets that were being acquired initially were many mining and other assets, which gave rise to sensitive questions about the resources sector and, and about the supply chain and those sorts of things. Having said that, the rules apply equally to everybody and uh, foreign government investors, as we've just discussed, apply equally to a Singaporean or a Canadian or a Californian state pension fund as they would Chinese or other state-owned enterprise. The questions are the same. The outcome may differ, but often the outcome is, is dependent really upon the asset. And we talked earlier about sensitive industries. And to give you an example, I mean, there have been several transactions which have either been rejected or suggested that they went back for restructuring. And some of those did involve Chinese investors, both private sector and state-owned. But equally, there's been some notable rejections over the last five or so years involving U.S. companies. So Archer Daniels bid for a company here called GrainCorp was rejected by the Foreign Investment Review Board. Oh. And when the Singaporean and Australian stock exchanges were looking to merge, FERB would not allow the Singaporean uh, exchange to receive foreign investment approval. So it's often really about the asset as much as the investors. Okay. Having said that, there has been a wave of increased Chinese investment in Australia, and there have been one or two transactions that have given rise to concern. So one particular investment was controversial, which was in 2015. And for reasons that had to do with the fact that the asset was being stolen by a territory government or state government, uh -huh. which is the Northern Territory, the lease of the port of Darwin to a Chinese company for 99 years did cause some concerns. And the reason for that was there were quite serious national security concerns because of proximity to both Australian and US defense forces very near that port. So subsequent to that transaction, there's been much more scrutiny on it, on every transaction involving security and, and other services as part of the FERB process. But at a high level, uh, it's country neutral, mm -hmm. uh, but countries that have more involvement of the state in their enterprises will receive more scrutiny. More scrutiny. That, that makes sense yeah. based on, on what you told us earlier. Let's talk logistics for a second. You know, we, we've talked, I think, conceptually how these things work and, and what the regime states and, and what's mandated. Ingrid, how long does it take to get FERB approval? And does that affect transaction timelines or how would it? It does. There's a minimum of 40 days. So there's a 30-day approval period for FERB and then they've got 10 days to actually notify you. So a 40-day time frame. Mm -hmm. They do, the FERB board does have the ability to extend the time period if your transaction is sensitive or complex or they need further information, but you should factor in a minimum of 40 days in your transaction timetable. And the other thing just on that that's worth noting is that there are fees that are payable when you apply for FERB approval, and those fees are non-refundable. 
So even if your deal doesn't proceed for some reason or, or your FERB approval is rejected, you don't get a refund of those fees. And oh. they start around $25,000 for most applications. But for certain transactions that are over a billion dollars, they can be 100000 Wow, you better be serious then, right? Yeah, yeah. And reasonably assured you're going to get approved, I would think. Wow. Okay. Let's talk perception for a second. Amelia, I don't know what the reputation might be out there in terms of Australia and, and, and taking in direct foreign investments, but is Australia anti-foreign investment? Is there a risk inherent to trying to do a deal in Australia that it may not be approved based on you know the rest of the world? Not at all. Look, the um, most applications provided to FERB are approved within the 40-day period without any issue at all. For example, in the last financial year, FERB approved 11,000 transactions with a combined um, investment value of about $163 billion. It only rejected two applications in that period. Oh, well, geez, that's, that's statistically irrelevant, right? It's very rare for applications to be denied, although it is possible that certain sensitive investments, even if they are approved, they might be subject to more conditions or undertakings by the acquirer. So things around tax is common, governance, um, board structure, and that the bidder will maintain a continued presence in Australia. In terms of the transactions that get rejected, they are normally very high profile and very large and go to um, sensitive factors around access or control of critical infrastructure or sale of very large-scale agricultural land holdings or if there are national security concerns. So just by way of example, the New South Wales government's proposal to sell and privatise our electricity network, Ausgrid, to Chinese and Hong Kong investors in 2016 was, was rejected. There was also a $13 billion bid by a Hong Kong-based listed company that looked by APA Group, Energy Network, and that was rejected in 2018. And that company was our largest gas pipeline company. So again, another critical infrastructure deal that was that was canned. And when we were talking about agricultural land before, um, one key example where an agricultural deal has, has also been rejected, there was a Chinese company that was looking to buy a very large cattle station in the middle of Australia. And that cattle station accounted for about um, 2.5% of Australia's entire um, agricultural land holdings. Oh. And that was rejected not only on the basis of what we were talking about before in terms of Australian investors having an opportunity to buy those land holdings. So there was a view that that land holding was so large that it was out of the reach of Australian landholders to have the opportunity to participate in it in that bidding process. And also there were some um, national defence concerns about the land holding because part of the station was actually located on a weapons testing range in South Australia. So there's lots of issues that arise, but when we look at the rejections, they're normally concerned with the identity of the bidder or these really key sensitive issues around national interest. It sounds like Australia is obviously open for investment, but there are some safeguards in place which should be, which segues very nicely into my final question. We'll wrap this up with Mark. How does the treasurer decide what is in the national interest after these recommendations are made to the treasurer from FERB? How does that decision actually come about? That's a really good question, Dave. And I think um, there is deliberately no definition of national interest. And when this legislation was being rewritten in 2015, we, through the Law Society, had some discussions with 
the government and the policymakers about whether there should be a definition. And the reason that this isn't defined is it, it needs to be able to move with the time. So what might constitute national interest one day may change on another day. So, for example, we talked about that sensitivity about personal data earlier, and that's a good example of issues emerging that might affect the national interest. Mm -hmm. It very much does cover things like national security, which you would expect, but it can also involve consideration of the impact of the economy and the community on competition and taxation issues. And it also can involve an issue around the character or nature of the investor. At a practical level, FERB does this by consulting with various government agencies that regulate matters such as tax, national security, competition, and corporate matters during this review period. And Ingrid was talking earlier about the time. The reasons why sometimes reviews take longer than others is that issues arise or questions arise through some of the review agencies. And that might be tax concerns, uh, it might be security concerns, or it might be competition concerns, just depending on the nature of the proposed investor. The FERB also takes advice from the government's critical infrastructure centre on issues of national security risks if that acquisition relates to critical infrastructure, such as power, ports, water or telecommunications. And Amelia just gave a couple of examples of electricity transmission assets and gas pipeline assets being assets where foreign proposed investment was, was rejected on these grounds. And it's interesting, the critical infrastructure centre, to the point of things moving with the times, that was only established in early 2017. Oh. And that was largely in response to government and community concern about increased interest in these types of assets and increased interest in state governments, which often own them in Australia, looking to sell those types of assets. I see. So it's, it's a broad church of what national interest can be, but at the moment, they're probably the key ones. Very good. Very good. And who knows how that might evolve in the future even. Hey, we're going to leave this right there. This was a great, great overview of uh, what's happening with foreign direct investment in Australia. Mark. Ingrid, Amelia, Chase, thank you so much for being here, and I hope we talk soon. For more information on Jones Day's M&A and government regulation work, go to the Practices page at jonesday.com. There you'll find complete bios and contact information, along with news, publications, and other information about those practices. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, and Stitcher. While you're there, check out our previous podcast, especially this series on foreign direct investment which remains a very, very high area of interest. Thanks for listening to Jones Day Talks Foreign Direct Investments. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.